This is Dan Eaton. I'm a reporter at Columbus Business First, and this is Newsmakers, an occasional podcast with Central Ohio leaders and decision makers. Victor Thorne is the co-founder of Origin Malt, a local company that wants to bring barley back as a big crop in the Midwest, primarily for use in the making of beer and spirits. Farming, malting barley, and brewing aren't the most diverse industries, something Thorne wants to change. Thorne is multiracial. His father's family is from Barbados, while his mother's side is from rural Claremont County here in Ohio. In this wide-ranging interview, Thorne talks about that experience, both its privileges and its problems. And he makes a business case for why increased diversity is good for all and how Origin Malt is working toward that goal. Thanks for listening. The best place to start would probably be your background if you want to tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself. A lot of my background is really rooted in family history on both sides. I, to me, it's always been interesting and I feel like I learn something new every day about someone in my family's past that I didn't know about before. So on my mother's side, I'm seventh generation Ohio. Her family moved to Ohio right around the time where it became a state and uh, they were granted a plot of land down near the Ohio River in Claremont County. And she was born on that same land. Uh, and we have a family graveyard down there where we go a couple of times a year now as aunts and uncles and folks are aging. There's a church, a Methodist church and a graveyard and all these things on their old property. We visit a lot of plots in that graveyard that are go back a couple hundred years. So it's very interesting that I, I don't think my mom had left Ohio before she met my dad at, when she was a, had a degree and, and was a medical te- technologist at Ohio State, and he uh, was a pathologist working in the, in the lab there. So not too many people from my mom's family had gone to college. She was one of uh, a few of her siblings, about half, I think three of her siblings um, or four went to college and out of a large family. So when, when they met, um, my dad is an immigrant and uh, he grew up in British Guyana in South America. His father was a real, really a pioneer and educator, was born in Barbados, was the first Caribbean person of African descent to get two degrees from a university in, in Great Britain. So he had an undergraduate, I guess, and a master's uh, from Durham. And so he went back to Guyana and, and became an educator and a politician, was mayor of the capital city at one point, spent about 40 years in politics, and also built the first school there for, that was for anyone of any ethnic background, any socioeconomic. My father's father was black. And his father was a, a businessman. So it was very interesting. My, my father's, neither of my parents grew up in, in any sort of hardship, mm-hmm. uh, significant hardship. They both had privilege in the way that you would probably call it. And it was interesting. So a big focus of, on education on both sides in the last generation. My grandfather built a school that was integrated and challenged the British system. It was it was a very, very challenging to do something like that. He launched it in 1904. So my, my grandfather was born in the 1860s. 
<laughs> more than 100 years older than me. But he, uh, he also was an advocate for uh, getting workers opportunities. So he created unions for people of African descent and things like that in, in Guyana uh, that became very instrumental in, in the Caribbean uh, as a template to try to get folks that have been freed from slavery into education systems and workforces where they have upward mobility. So my dad went to Lincoln University, which is, I think, the oldest historically black university, HBCU. And he uh, went to medical school in Germany, got his MD there, came back to Massachusetts to do his residency, and then moved to Ohio State and met my mom. There's a few years age difference and obviously a skin color difference in the mm -hmm. early 60s. And that was very interesting. A lot of the challenges that they faced, they didn't really talk about until I was an adult. But I do know that there's a reason that we grew up in Granville. Uh, they wanted to live in a neighborhood closer to the university. And my mom had found a few homes. And when they went to make a final choice, none of them were available after my dad joined her. Uh, so little things like that are very interesting. And I, you know, we just been watching a lot of movies and things from the mid 60s, like Selma and others. And mm -hmm. it's just fascinating to see that there's still, still a lot of things that go on today that, that uh, have not yet been fully extinguished or resolved in terms of, you know, racial tensions and things like that. Like, uh, I mean, I was just going to jump in real quick. Is like you said, you, you, you know, there is a, uh, you know, your, your, your family has somewhat maybe more of a, of a privileged background, but even with that, there were still issues, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I, I loved growing up in Granville. My personal, like, one of my personal experiences and, and probably one of the reasons why we grew up in Granville, even though Granville itself is not a highly diverse place, it's in a it's in an area where Denison University has a great diversity of students and, and faculty. And college towns, uh, it was just a great place, great place to live. But I'll, I'll never forget, I went to Columbus Academy in Gahanna and I had friends uh, in all neighborhoods all around 270, you know, like 40 something zip codes. One personal experience for me going, going to prom, I borrowed my dad's fancy car and and was driving to pick up my date and I was wearing a tuxedo and an overcoat got pulled over for not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign and spent about an hour in the back of a police cruiser not quite sure why that was such a big you know deal I was pretty sure I stopped anyway but it came down to it where the police officer asked me what my nationality was and I said I'm an American and he said no what's your nationality and I said I'm, I was born in Newark and, I, and I've lived here all my life and my parents are American and I'm a citizen of the United States. And he said, you're, you're being a smart aleck. You're, you're, not, you're obviously not white, so what are you? And I said, oh, so like what's my race or eth ethnicity? Is that what you're asking? And, and he, he, he didn't like my attitude, but I was just trying to clarify. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I said, I'm, I'm mixed, so I guess I'm black. And he said, okay, we could have done that a lot easier if you just said that at the beginning. So I was just fascinated that I was asked what my nationality was. I think that was, that was one of the few times where I really felt super uncomfortable and possibly not fully safe. Mm -hmm. uh, 
there's always just this these undertones and things and one of my one of my privileges i think as a child is you know my hair's a little longer today you know i got some more curls going and and but i i've always had the privilege of being able to to blend in with the crowd i think not everyone has that that privilege that has color in their their background and their heritage and i've always been cognizant of that i can I can be a part of a conversation or a party or something where people are expressing themselves where they may hold back if there was someone that they knew was a minority or of, of color. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I've learned a lot listening in and hearing those conversations and, and uh, you know, education has always been a big part of, of my background, my family. I'm the youngest of four and all four of us went to Harvard uh, as an undergraduate. And while I was there, I had a cousin that was also there on my dad's side. So, and we had, when my older siblings were there, there were also cousins there. So it was a lot of education focus Mm -hmm. and giving back. And I've always sort of really tried to figure out how to support people of color and people that don't have the same opportunities and, and privileges. And I think everyone in my family's done that. My father helped create Par Excellence Academy in Newark uh, years and decades ago, trying to think of, of alternative education for kids that children that don't have means. That's part of the reason why I'm on the board of trustees at Columbus Academy is to try to help shift cultures and, and evolve the school that started out as a, as a primarily all-white country day school for privileged mm-hmm. white families, uh, which is now much more diverse. And, and every day we try to get more diverse in faculty, administration, student body and all those things but it's a huge challenge it's a yeah. huge challenge yeah. and whenever you feel like you're making progress somebody reminds you or some incident reminds you that there's a long way to go when i was in chicago i think i was really blown away by some of the statistics i, I joined a a nonprofit uh, board there called jobs for youth and and they said there were over eighty thousand youth between 17 and 24 without a job and almost all of them are, are women or, or black or Hispanic minorities. And I just couldn't believe that. And when I went through this program on the board and, and was looking at the 2000 children or youth every year that they would impact, you would see people in tears and you would see people that were valedictorians of the Chicago public school systems that couldn't make it through a semester of a university. It's just really challenging. So then, you know, when I get to the professional world and start working in different environments and building businesses and working with investors and things, I realize there's very, very little diversity there too. Yeah. But the, the current company that I launched with uh, my partner, Ryan Lang, you know, we have every person on our team is a woman besides us. Mm-hmm. And our board has, has two black members out of six board members and and so we've proactively done things the right way, but we've always hired the best possible candidates too. Yeah. But when all this, when these things that have been occurring over, that have triggered a lot of productive and, and sometimes unproductive events and conversation over the last few months have occurred, I've really gone back and reflected a little bit on the state of the industry that, that you know, I've, I've become a part of mm-hmm. for the last seven, eight years. And it's fascinating. So I asked the members of my team who have worked 
across many of the largest suppliers of of ingredients to to craft brewers and and large brewers to brewers in general. You know, it's like I really want to try to network and 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 talk to people of color in the industry. Do you know, do you know of any executives at any of the malting companies or or suppliers? And honestly, it was it was you know sort of a interesting moment where no one uh, with 50 years of experience between our team members, no one could come up with the name of an executive in any of the companies. And I'm yeah. like, that's, that's really odd. I understand, you know, we work with a lot of farmers. I understand the lack of diversity in farmers. You mm -hmm. know, 40 acres and a mule would have been great if it had been fully implemented, but there are just very few black farm owners and very few farm owners sell their farm mm -hmm. or, you know, so they're generational. And most of them are white owned. So it's very hard to get someone in ownership uh, unless a child marries someone of color. So it's just been really fascinating looking through the supply chain. And then on the brewer and distiller side, there's, there are a few in each state that start to pop up that are black entrepreneurs or, or minority entrepreneurs or women. And that's encouraging. I just felt like it'd be interesting to just talk about that and, and pose the question or explore why and how why things are the way they are and how, mm -hmm. how we uh, adjust the future and make things different and, and make things more accessible mm -hmm. to everyone, to anyone that has an interest. It's really shocking and disappointing when you take a step back and you look at the landscape you're in and you're like, yep, just like just about everything else I've been involved in, there's very little opportunity unless mm -hmm. you make it for yourself. And it's very hard to create the opportunity for yourself if you don't have the background and the networks. Mm -hmm. you know, I've had the privilege of being able to be credible to raise millions of dollars. I don't think you can just walk into that if you don't have a Harvard degree and a Kellogg MBA and, mm -hmm. and several successful ventures in your background. You can't walk in and raise $5 million from farmers saying, I want to do this. They would be like, who, why, and yeah. <laughs> It was hard enough just with the story, but you know it's extremely difficult. So how do you how do we create apprenticeships and how do we recruit from non-traditional recruiting pathways that are mm -hmm. all run by people that attract people that are like them, which is not diverse, right? What's the business case for diversity here? You know that's a that's a that's a phrase I think we're hearing a lot more. You know, there's there's sort of a universal case I think across a lot of industries um, uh, for diversity. Is that the argument? Would that be the argument in your world as well, or is there more nuance or, or something else to it as to why it's important to have diverse people in your world? You know, I think it's it's there. There are many ways you can you can uh, answer that question. It all depends on your mood and and the angle of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think that you know when you look in in opportunity you look at people with talent and you try to help them figure out a career pathway and they have to be attracted to it their families have to be attracted to it so one of the challenges in the k-12 education system is is implementing and making attractive career pathways that aren't go and be a history major and be go to a liberal arts college and and get into a consulting firm and you're set right that's what every family looks for, or be a doctor or a lawyer. But you know, in, in the industry that I'm in, in particular, 
from end to end, it's, it's engineering and it's science and it's, it's art. You know, it's, it's really, it's something that's so dynamic and it doesn't have to, it's not a sin industry. I mean, beer and distilled spirits, but, but barley in the supply chain, we're getting into sprouted grains, health food, mm -hmm. uh, plant-based proteins, flavors, non-sugar, like non-high fructose sugar, things like that. You know, that's the industry we're in. It's chemistry. It's, it's uh, biology. It's feed for livestock, grass-fed mm -hmm. beef. So it's, it's a huge, huge industry, and it's growing, and it's never going to go away, and it's always evolving and changing. So on the, on the side of access to career paths, I think it's really important to keep that door open mm -hmm. and not have that be something that that's just not even an option, stay away from that area of campus. We have land-grant institutions that are agriculture-focused. The, the uh, number of people of color and women that are in agriculture to, as students should be at a rate that is commensurate with the population. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think they are. And on the other side, consumers are starting to be more aware of their supply chain. It's been very convenient for very large producers, global producers of, of beer and spirits to not talk about anything about their supply chain except what they want you to know, which is the Bud Bowl, which is these very consumer-focused marketing uh, strategies, which are, is what, what, what macro producers of brands do. It's fantastic. It's great. It's fun. Makes you feel good. Now that we have 8,000 craft brewers, the Americans and the many countries in the world are starting to say, I like this. And I like the flavor. I like the, the variety, the diversity. And I'm learning about hops because that's something people can talk about. But what about the other things? Where is this coming from? Who is producing this? I like the picture on the label, but how can I get a connection now that I have you know, I, I went, people are going from 30 or 40 brands to 8,000 brands. And with those, within those 8,000 brands, each one of them has 10 offerings. So you're going from 50 to 100,000 different things to choose from. So how do we differentiate? And for people of color that want to identify with something for the first time, they may, may be searching for or may be delighted to see that there is diversity in the supply chain and leadership and management and creativity and, you know, it's, it's just interesting. I think I, I would love to have uh, very highly creative folks from various cultural backgrounds and, and points of view making labels if I were mm -hmm. and, and being creative. How do, I, how do I promote and offer this as something unique and, and genuine and authentic to a target consumer that has, has been looked over for forever, is yeah. not been a target. When, when you talk about these ideas with um, whether it's brewers and distillers or um, other, other malting businesses or growers, what's the reception? Are, are, people, are people like, yes, you're right? Is there resistance? I guess, how, how do people respond when you bring up these ideas? I don't think anybody's said I'm crazy. Right. They, they fear, you know, that that would be just not PC. But uh, generally, the, the feedback's been positive. You know, we're really happy to partner with Noctera, for instance, on their Black is Beautiful brew. And, you know, I've spoken with all of our customers that we have contracts with. One proudly stood up and he said, my daughter, I have a Black member of my brewery, owner, mm -hmm. married my daughter. 
And so totally understand what you're saying and we're, we're in. So it's just interesting. And, and, and in terms of diversity, we, when we talk to brewers about diversity on their teams, a very good question pops up all the time. Where do we recruit? Like we, mm-hmm. put, we post jobs and we, we have to fill the role. How do we find, how do we really reach in and, and pull people towards us from non-traditional communities of folks that have been working in our industry? And that's a, that's a challenging question to answer. You, it literally takes more work. And who has more time to do more work? That's hard. So it has to be deliberate. And, it, and I think that Brewers Association has, has and the Ohio Craft Brewers Association, uh, and the national group, they've, they've been working hard and they have evangelists that are out there trying to spread the word and, and figure out ways to get into certain demographics, enlighten folks that just don't, aren't aware of the opportunities in the industry. I wanted to, I wanted to go back to, to something you mentioned early on and, and you said that, and, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm not, you know, kind of phrasing this right or, or framing this right, but you said, um, you know, to an extent, because of, of being biracial, you've been kind of privy maybe to conversations that you think you otherwise maybe wouldn't have been. Did I, did I hear that right? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can, can you give me an example or two of, of, of what, you know, what you mean by that? Like something that you think you're hearing that maybe people wouldn't share, you know, otherwise? You know, the easiest is, is when people are sitting around and joking and then all of a sudden someone pops off the, the off-color joke. Yep. And may even may even use some some language, some words that you, I, I'm just not accustomed to hearing. Mm-hmm. And then you just observe the table, and the people that know who I am become very uncomfortable. And folks that don't know laugh and yeah. carry may or may not laugh and 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 go along with it. But it's interesting. People that do know my background become very un, would typically become very uncomfortable. Probably not say anything but sort of try to change the subject or whatever. And, and I would typically have the demeanor where I would, I would subtly either exit the area or the conversation or try to change the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, I was not one that would, would uh, step in and, and go off on someone that I didn't know very well in front of a group. I'd step back and just, and just uh, talk to my friends and say, well, that's not someone I need to be around. A lot of conversations, you can tell when people talk about black leaders, mm-hmm. whether Obama or a celebrity or something, you could just sense sometimes when people feel like they're in a crowd of likeness, mm-hmm. they're, the way that they talk about certain people and things, and you know, they just feel like they're imposters or you, know, you just feel like there's a definite bias against, and it's not it's not Obama's policies. It was a skin color. And it's, it's just interesting to, to observe things like that. Mm-hmm. And when I go into some religious institutions and there's very little diversity and you hear the, the preacher or pastor or priest talking about certain things of the past, and you just tell that there's inherent head bobbing whenever they say certain groups did certain things and we vanquished them or something. I always find that fascinating. And that's probably my, my anthropology background in college and stuff where I'm always reading cultures and people and, and sort of observing and creating my own 
persona like a chameleon wherever mm -hmm. I am just so I don't I kind of just want to make sure I get out and I'm comfortable. The Black Lives Matter movement over the last couple of months, obviously it, it pretty, it's been around for years, but events in the last uh, couple of months and, and the, the protests here in Columbus and elsewhere have brought things uh, to greater light than before. Has, has that changed you in any way in terms of, of, you know, how you're, you know, moving forward either individually or as a business, or I guess what's your reaction to, you know, current events, what's happening out there? Yeah, it's, it's definitely uh, changed my, energy level towards the topic. My wife and two children, 11 and, and seven, and I walked with in the New Albany Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. March a couple months ago, and there looked like thousands of people, and it was probably three quarters white, mainly women, and it was fantastic. And it was really interesting to see the energy behind a peaceful walk where, you know, we're really just reflecting on what's happening and trying to make a, a positive statement. It's been interesting looking on social media, which is exhausting in and of itself. <laughs> it's interesting to see what people are saying and participating every now, you know, in, in, in ways that I feel like education mm -hmm. is a really key component of this. I, I think it's been really amazing to, uh, there's a group from Columbus, a group of women that created a a social media gathering point, I guess. I'm not sure what they, what the, what it would be called. And I think it was four or five women and now it has 12,000 members. Okay. And a large part of the conversation for what my wife tells me is white women saying, what do we do? What should we say? When should we say it? When should we stay out of it? And then stopping and listening and letting the black mother say, this is sometimes you just need to be quiet. And sometimes we need you to step up and you kind of get, you have to be more aware and make the decision yourself based on where you see the situation in business. I, I don't think I've ever in education or in business directly or deliberately used my race or my background as uh, something that was a tool. I have never registered a black owned business or a minority business supplier. I should. Why would I not do that? You know, going to college, even though my three older siblings had graduated with honors from Harvard, I was told that the only reason I got in there was because I was black. And I was like, okay, well, my brother's at Penn Medical School and my other brother's at the Harvard JD MBA program and my sister just graduated from Case Medical School. I guess none of us deserve to go anywhere. Like, what are you talking about? But I took someone's spot. I took a, a privileged white male spot. <laughs> who probably assumed we were all on financial aid, which wouldn't, shouldn't matter anyway. Uh, so, it's, so in business, I, I'm much more, I've, over the last few months, I've been much more aware and, and much more talkative and, and making people aware that, you know, there are opportunities to work with a black CEO. You know, if you're, if you're wondering where to find the suppliers or where, where to find companies to fund and back, we're right here. I wanted to, to go back to one to to one other thing. Um, you mentioned that uh, uh, your mom and, and that side of the family grew up in, in Claremont County, uh, yes. which that has been in the news here in Ohio lately, particularly the town of, of, of Bethel. You said um, you said that you've gone. Your family has a cemetery there that you go back to visit a yep. couple times a year. What's your impression of that kind of corner of this of the state? I mean, do you think the 
media coverage is fair and accurate? I mean, are you surprised by anything you've seen that's come out of, of, of that area? That area has had very little exposure to diversity and to, and, and I think that there is not a large amount of mobility out of that part of the state or part mm -hmm. of the country. And those two things are very challenging when you, when, if you've been in an area where gen, for generations it's been the same, everyone that goes to the grocery store is the same, mm -hmm. you know everybody, your school, your county, the farthest you go is maybe to Cincinnati or to Kings Island or something, mm -hmm. really not a lot of mobility. There's just not a whole lot of education about what in the world is out there. So what you get is what you see on TV. And when you read, read the paper and watch the news, the, the news and the, and the papers talk about, you know, the crime mm -hmm. and, and uh, all the negative things and schools failing in the inner city and, and homelessness and poverty. And, and, the, and, and you have folks that say, we don't want that around mm -hmm. us. We don't want any, of, any part of that. So it's pure ignorance. It's lack of, it's not chosen ignorance. It's just uh, not having learned or been educated about what is going on in other parts of the, mm -hmm. the state or the world. So I'm not overly surprised by what we saw going on there and, and what the residents there said. I'd say that my family that is there and, and that ha has grown up there and, and lives there, I think they learned a lot over the last 53 uh, years that my parents have been married. I think they've learned a tremendous amount, 56 years, sorry, <laughs> 1965, 65, 55 years. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, exposure and learning and being around people of color or, or people that are diverse in whatever way, to not experience it, you just don't even know. Yeah. So there's fear of the unknown and there's fear of what has been glorified in media and news and movies. And I, I think that, you know, I, I think that in a lot of areas, not just in Claremont County, people fear the protests and the marches as something that threatens their safety. And ironically, they collect their weapons and go and create things that become unsafe, uh, which is unfortunate. But uh, it's, I think it's, it just goes a lot, there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And it needs to be authentic and it needs to be experiential and people have to have open minds. And I don't think that there that everyone in the world or everyone in Claremont County has a closed mind. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people change when they have exposure to difference. Well, we're we're nearing the end of our time here. Um, is there anything you can think of that I haven't asked you about? My favorite color. Yeah. What is it? What is your favorite color? Blue. Blue. What's your what's your what's your favorite type of beer? Uh, I like a lager. I like light beer. Yep. Grew up on Bud Miller, Coors, Keystone, whatever it was that was cheapest in the store. And like uh, Noctera has a Mexican lager that I love. I'm really a big fan of the Heartlandia American Ale. Just mm -hmm. low IBU. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of hoppy beers, so I don't drink a whole lot of IPAs. I like just basic beer that, that tastes pretty good and you can have a couple in a hot summer day and enjoy it. Nothing wrong with that. Well, Victor, I think that covers everything. I appreciate uh, this very much. Thank you for chatting with me and sharing some of your, your knowledge and experience. Thank you. I appreciate All it. All right.